Well, this is the last message in the series that we started uh, just a couple months ago. It was a seven-part series, although I made it eight parts. And it was on sort of all the, really the hot-button um, general kinds of questions that a lot of people have concerning the Christian faith when they're in that exploratory phase or when they're in difficult life circumstance. For example, a lot of people, you know, a real big issue today is, well, if there is a God, you know, why is there so much suffering and turmoil and all of that? That was a sermon was devoted just to that issue. And all of these messages can be found online at our website where you can either listen to them right off your computer or you can burn an MP3 file for yourself or you can make a CD, which uh, is quickly becoming uh, what used to be the cassette tape, as my grandfather used to call them. That newfangled cassette tape that came out that was so much smaller than the 8-track, which was about the size of my Bible, I think. I... But uh, these these messages are, they're not quite as contiguous as when I do a series from a book, meaning the book itself is the series. Um, but a lot of them do uh, kind of track on each other. And this, this one today is fittingly the last one, and it is about how can I, or can, is it true that I can know God personally? And so again, you know, that's, it's keenly important to understand, first of all, is the Bible really the Word of God, which was one of the messages, and is Jesus really God was two of the messages. And again, why pain and suffering and all that. So I uh, highly recommend those to you, not only if you just haven't heard them, but also for those of you from faith, um, if you have somebody that uh, would be willing to listen listen to something a little more involved and in-depth, uh, ask them what their preferred method of, of technology is, and you can send them an MP3 file or burn them again, one of those almost ancient CDs as it is. Well, we are here on what is traditionally called Palm Sunday or Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And I think probably just about every year in some way, shape, or form, I mention the fact that it was a triumphal entry in a sense for us because of what it meant coming at the very tail end of Jesus' public ministry, meaning he had the cross immediately in view, just a matter of days down the timeline. Uh, but it certainly wasn't a triumphal entry for Jesus, uh, because as we're going to talk about, although initially it looked like it was a big jubilant celebration and reception of him, it would end with him being turned over to the magistrates leading to his execution, which is what next Sunday will be all about. So this morning, as I begin from John chapter 12 in verse 12 about the triumphal entry passage... I want you to understand that this is right on the heels of Jesus having raised Lazarus from the dead. So I begin, on the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees, and he went out to meet him, and he began to shout, and they began to shout, Hosanna, which means, Lord, save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus finds it finding a young donkey sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. And that is capitalized in the Bible 
uh, at least in my version, because it's indicating that it's a direct quote from elsewhere in the Bible. And in this case, from Zechariah, which was written 500 years before of the event that is taking place, meaning that's how far in advance, very explicitly, Jesus' triumphal entry was prophesied about in Scripture. These things his disciples did not understand at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. So the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify about him. For this reason also the people went and met him because they had heard that he had performed this sign. Let's not race too quickly by that. It is key in understanding my initial comments. For this reason also, the people went and met Jesus because they heard that he had performed this sign, referring again explicitly to Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, but also quite immediately preceding the triumphal entry was Jesus having fed the multitudes and the thousands of people miraculously providing bread and fish out of the few crumbs. Uh, that they had left from the 12 loaves and the fish and all that was left over. And also right preceding this in our text, not necessarily on the chronological timeline, but the juxtapositioning of incidents in text to other texts is an important thing to note when you are studying the Bible. Because again, what it's doing is it's stacking up for us all these miracles, Jesus having healed now blind the blind beggar Bartimaeus of his uh, lifelong blindness. These things are stacking up to show why the people would have been so ecstatic about Jesus coming to town. And here we are looking from the outside at this scene from history. And what we see is the revealing, again, of the long-foretold, the long-awaited Messiah of the Jewish people. And they rightly are ecstatic that the Messiah has come, or at least so it seems. If we were on site in the day, we would have every reason to see the jubilant celebrations that were taking place, the masses going out to Jesus as he's riding into to, uh, Jerusalem, And we would have no reason not to think anything other than, boy, these are faith-filled people. These are true followers of Jesus. He was everything that they had hoped he would be. Let me repeat that. He was everything they had hoped he would be. Consequently, the people on that Palm Sunday wanted a personal relationship with that Jesus. And by the way, if you didn't know why Palm Sunday, why is it called that? It was tradition that when somebody of import, mainly a king, was coming into town, what have you, they would take palm fronds and they would just basically cover the dirt road with palm fronds as a sign of respect and adoration. The Jesus that was coming now, remember all the miracles piled on top of one another, was exactly who they had expected him to be, and they were longing for that Jesus. And why wouldn't they? He was amazingly powerful. He was the magical provider. And so he was wildly popular. And finally, in the mess, in the, in the minds of the Jewish people, part and parcel of the coming Messiah was that he would be a ruling and reigning king. And so finally, there would be relief from the nastiness of living in an unjust and imperfect and very fallen world. 
Jesus was what any normal person would imagine of a God to be. And certainly one that they were willing to worship and follow and adore. And they did. Right up to the point when they didn't. And the folks in Jesus' day are just like folks of today. We long for that new day when the world will once again be recreated by the Lord. When it will operate after the manner that he created the original earth to operate unsullied by sin. They loved the Jesus who conformed to their image and likeness. That is their imagination of who they wanted this God to be. And at the end of the day, the relief that Jesus brought from the daily pain, sorrows, and heartaches was just that. It was only temporary. And the cheering crowd's downfall was that they weren't concerned about the not yet while they were engulfed right smack dab in the middle of the now. But to be fair, life was not easy in A.D. 33. Rome was flexing its political muscle with the Caesars focusing more on creating an oppressive empire than impressive salads and dressing. Oh, what? (laughs) Hey, look, that there's funny. I don't care who you are. Okay? I got a kick out of it if nobody else did. To repeat... (laughs) No, not that. The adoring crowds there on Palm Sunday weren't concerned about eternity because they were engulfed in the present. But God in His mercy knows that the present lasts but a blink of an eye when compared to time without end. And what the jubilant crowds missed over and over again was that God did not come mainly to bring them relief from the woes of this life which again is fleeting, but to bring relief from the suffering of sin which separates one from God for all eternity, the inescapable consequence of sin. And the multitudes didn't care to bow to a Savior who would culminate his earthly time with a torturous death and of all things on a Roman cross. They were expecting the annihilation of Rome when the Messiah would come and that he would establish thy kingdom come. They weren't concerned about sins. They wanted signs. They weren't all that interested in the long-term solution to their suffering. They wanted the short-term feel-good. And when it became clear that Jesus didn't come to unseat political powers, when it became clear that Jesus didn't come to take away all their pain and heal all their illnesses and fix their marriages, and when it became clear that Jesus was not going to be that good luck charm savior making all their wildest dreams come true, you gotta leave that to Pedro. They bailed. Some of you are going, what? It's alright, some of you get it. Even the bold, outspoken Peter, Jesus, I'll follow you even unto death, ends up saying, Jesus? Jesus who? (laughs) And today, not much has changed. And why? 
Why did the people of 33 AD miss by a mile the very one that they were so close to being right there in his presence? It wasn't that they didn't have faith. They had a very passionate faith, in fact, but it wasn't the real kind of faith that is grounded in the person, but the kind grounded in perceptions of the promise. And why was that? Well, it was because one's willful ignorance of the word written, meaning our Bibles, has direct bearing on one's faith in the word incarnate. Let me say that again, hoping it'll sink in. One's willful ignorance of the word written has direct bearing on one's faith in the word incarnate. John chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Drop down to verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Now, some kind of faith in some kind of God is commonplace. And it might be as general as a very broad belief in a supreme being or a higher power. And the vast majority, in fact, of the human race, throughout the human race, has some kind of generic faith in a generic deity or deities. And they're content with that. But change the focus to a personal relationship with their deity, and the subject then all of a sudden becomes a lot more intimidating. You see, it's much easier to live with and manage an understandable, domesticated God than one who is loving, but mysterious. As a concept or as an idea, a person's God can be conveniently brought into existence for any reason or for no reason, or can be put on a shelf and dismissed until you call it up for whatever might serve your purpose. It's a way of controlling One's deity. But a deity that is basically your handmaid, that is controlled by you, is no God at all. And yet, strangely, that is the kind of God most of humanity desires. In a wonderful illustration from one who is much brighter than me, Mr. Beaver speaking to Susan in C.S. Lewis's classic, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, is inquiring of Mr. Beaver about Aslan, the lion, who is the metaphorical representation of God in that story. Mr. Beaver explains, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan. I, I thought he was he was a man. Is, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe? said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And a domesticated deity, a tame deity, is easier to live with, at least on first blush. But then when push comes to shove, as life invariably does for everybody, a domesticated deity is weak and ultimately worthless. Think about Job. Poor, unfortunate Job for a moment. Goes all the way back to the Old Testament. 
God goes out of his way, and it's very important in the very first couple of verses in the book of Job, is that God lets us know, the readers knowing, and history knowing, that Job was a faithful and righteous man, and there was nobody on the face of the earth like him. Why is he telling us that? Because he wants to know, us to know that the calamity is that going to follow Job, probably unknown to anybody on the, in the human race ever. He wants us to know it was, had nothing to do with Job. It was not a consequence for Job's sinfulness. And what we are privy to is that behind the scenes in the book of Job, in a very mysterious way that I still can't wrap my head around completely, is that there was some kind of a challenge match between Satan and God Almighty. And it involved Job. And God said, Satan, consider my servant Job. Contrary to what you think, he will not end up cursing me. And you know the story, Job goes through his life and immediately there comes a whirlwind and takes away everything that's precious to him. First it starts with his own children and then his extended family and they're all wiped out and they are killed. And then it goes to his personal belongings and all his worth, or earthly wealth and that's all destroyed and devastated. And then it goes even further into Job's own personal health and then what might be even the worst of all of it is Job's wife. If you know the story, you know what I mean by that. Because her great comfort and her counsel to Job in the midst of this tragedy and calamity and pain and suffering is, Hey, Job, why don't you just curse God and die? Well, thanks, sweetie. (laughs) Bless her heart. Isn't that what we have to say? Well, Job starts out with his friends. And he starts telling, because his friends, you know, oh, those great friends, man. Job, look, man, we've got it together here. We know what your problem is. This is all happening to you because you have messed up big time and you need to own up to that. And then God will take care of that. And Job's Job is sitting there going, no, I haven't. Now, they don't know what we know. God said, no, Job hasn't messed up. Job was a remarkable individual. And finally, Job has had it with all his different counseling friends. And he now lashes out on God. When I say lash, he comes out in the fullness of his humanity under pain and suffering and sorrow and heartache and heartbreak. And he starts saying, Lord, why are you silent? I want some answers. I need some answers. I deserve some answers. What is going on? And what he gets from God is crickets, nothing. And we are privy to Job going on for about 30 chapters, railing and ranting. And God's just like on, are you done? No, he's not done yet. Okay. But then finally, there's a breakthrough. God finally breaks his silence and he answers Job, but not at all in the way that we or Job might expect. I view this, I try to view this as as kind of a, what would the history channel version of the book of Job look like? And more important, not just the details of Job and everything, but more importantly about God. 
because the History Channel, for what it's worth, has a way of messing up everything important about God Almighty, the truth of the Bible, the truth of God, the truth of Jesus, and all of it. No charge for this side editorial. So I'm viewing the History Channel doing the screenplay of this, and what would happen is they would have their God up here and would answer Job out of the sky, perhaps with lightning and great fanfare and thunder, but in some way, God would give a fairly saccharine reply to Job, gushing over him for sure about his goodness and how much he is loved by God, and they would have God commending him for his exemplary life of faith, especially under the horrid circumstances he had been living, and that would all be well and good, sort of, more or less, because there was some truth in there. But then they would have their God wind up apologizing to Job for all he had experienced. And so, of course, then Job would go away vindicated. He would be satisfied and fulfilled, as would all who view the history channels take. And we would all live happily ever after, believing that not only Job, but all mankind is validated and commended by God for the wonderful, wise creatures that we are. But if you know the story, (laughs) that ain't what happens. The Lord answers Job, chapter 38. He answers Job out of a whirlwind. Think tornado. Kind of sobering in and of itself. Who is this? That darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now, gird up your loins like a man. And I'm going to ask you. And you instruct me. Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. This divine interrogation continues for three chapters with God pelting Job with about 80 different questions. Of course, none of which Job can answer. And Job is sinking lower and lower into the realization of who he is and who it is that he is talking to. Job answers, verse uh, chapter 42. And Job answers the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things. And I know that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who am I that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that which I don't understand, things too wonderful for me, which I didn't know. Hear now, and I will speak. I will ask you, and you instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. And because of that, I retract and I repent in ashes and dust. God didn't give Job a single answer. Job is refreshing in his candor, honestly, and God is gracious to put Job's fallen nature out there on display for our benefit. But Job has a profound change of heart and change of perspective and change of life, which all came about me when his by-faith understanding collided with his by-sight 
understanding. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you, and therefore I retract in ashes and dust. Can't you remember when you were being drawn to the Lord? And you were sticking your toes, perhaps, in what I'll call the waters of faith. And, you know, you're skeptical, you're, you're curious, whatever, so you just stick your toe in and go, whoo, gee, retraction, it's kind of, wow, that's really chilly. But then, you know what, you kind of get used to it, or maybe it even feels good, and you put your whole foot in up to the ankle, you get used to that, you wade out a little bit, you get up to the knees, but then you're thinking, yeah, you know what, that's, that's as far as I'm going to go. Yeah, I'm not going past my knees, I, 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 eh. And that's where you remained. But then there came a day when things that had remained troublesome, which is why you'd only go into that water up to your knees, answers that you didn't have but desired, circumstances that were unchanged, all the things that kept you from plunging into the living waters of Jesus. And then one day there came a clarity, not about life, not about your circumstances, but about your desperate need for the Lord. And you abandoned your cautions, your personal whims, and you said, take me, Lord, I am yours. The personal relationship with the living God begins when your practical faith, meaning, what can God do for me? becomes a real faith promoting Jesus from your personal servant to your personal Lord. Have you ever wondered why we have both the written word and the word which became flesh? Follow the logic. If it is true that the populace at large, including Christians, are woefully ignorant of the inspired, infallible, and errant authoritative word of God, the written word, and that word written became flesh, which dwelt among us, then the word which became flesh is Jesus. So if people in general, and Christians in particular, are ignorant of the word written, then by definition, they will be ignorant of the word incarnate, which explains a great deal about the nature of an individual's personal faith. A faith that is not founded on, instructed by, constructed upon, and engulfed by the word of God is a faith that will falter, and the God that is worshipped will be a God that has been created. Quite a number of years ago, there was a death of a civil servant in the community who was well-known throughout the state. And we had his memorial service here, and it was attended by then-Governor Baldacci and all kinds of uh, other legislators and VIPs in, uh, in just in the state of Maine, and they were all here for this man's memorial service who himself was a profound Christian, strong-believing man who died of Lou Gehrig's disease, a long, 
nasty, suffering, debilitating illness that finally took his life. One of the people that was here that day was a pastor. And I was told later that the pastor that was here that day got saved that day at the memorial service. You see, that pastor did not realize that by being ignorant of the written word, he had been ignorant of the word that became flesh. His former faith was in a Jesus of his own creation and own design, and that is the scourge, frankly, of Christendom throughout the ages. The challenge that we all face is that for the most part, the world's way, which is the devil's way, Satan's way, of defining every aspect of life comes down to what you believe in your heart or what you feel rather than believing what is unassailably true. And if you want to read a sobering passage on that, try Jeremiah chapter 23. And this is why there are so many different so-called Christian religions and why the world and its various religions, including the Christian church, are caving to all manner of wickedness, evil, and ungodliness. This is why we have millions of babies being slaughtered globally in the name of women's rights. This is why duly enacted legal laws are trampled with pride. This is why male and female are no longer genetic absolutes, but are constructs of one's imagination. And Jesus frankly says it best. Matthew chapter 7, the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. God gave us his written word so that we may know what he is like. Head knowledge. Know. Head knowledge. And why the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So that we could experience who he is, soul knowledge, both head knowledge and soul knowledge. And Jesus said, he is the way, the truth, and the life. But the father of lies has convinced the world, just believe whatever it is that you have determined to be true. And pathetically, Hell will be full of people who have committed themselves to that damning philosophy. And that philosophy is propagated today everywhere in all manner and forms to all ages. It is part of Satan's plan. Example. Many years ago, I don't know how we stumbled onto it, we discovered an awesome little fantastical book called The Polar Express by Chris Van Allsburg. One of my favorite books to read to my children when they were in the house at Christmas time. We even did a thing here, as you know, a couple of years ago for Christmas time with the viewing of The Polar Express, which I'll get to in a moment. And parents, I just want to tell you that fantasy is perfectly okay and needs a kind of a big asterisk there 
because some people's versions of fantasy include all sorts of wicked demonization and and that's not what I'm talking about. But of the variety of, you know, the Velveteen Rabbit or the Polar Express or what have you, as long as you parents are clear with your children the difference between fantasy and reality. But then the book, years later, was produced for a movie. And Josh Groban recorded a song with a very catchy and hard not-to-like melody. And the song, titled Believe, became a big, big hit. But the lyrics are lethal. I'd be willing to bet many of you know the chorus. Believe in what your heart is saying. Hear the melody that's playing. There's no time to waste. There's so much to celebrate. Believe in what you feel inside. And give your dreams the wings to fly. You have everything you need if you just believe. Well, the Lord said, Of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. The truth was clear. That is forbidden fruit. It is lethal. Do not eat it. Oh, but when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and she saw that it was a delight to the eyes, and she saw that the tree was desirable to make one wise, what did she do? She did what her heart was saying, what she felt inside, and she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. And giving their dreams the wings to fly, sin entered the world. Belief in believing or believing in belief says, my belief defines truth. My belief is truth. And I warn you today that ever when you counter that absurd notion, you will be scorned. You will be branded intolerant, hateful, and narrow, which is ever so ironic. When God created us with a free will, it meant we have been granted the freedom to accept or reject good and evil, right and wrong, as decreed by God Almighty. God gave us the freedom to accept or reject what He determined to be true. He never gave us the freedom to define what is true for ourselves. Believe in what your heart is saying. Believe in what you feel inside is precisely what got Adam and Eve into trouble at the outset of it all. Simply believing doesn't make something so any more than disbelieving doesn't alter what is true. When I left Bangor on that fateful Saturday morning, pressed with my regular Saturday routine, having been there for a conference in the morning, I left with perfect faith, believing that I would be in Waterville within about the hour. 
And with all sincerity, I got on the highway and I drove and I drove and I drove and I drove and I I see this road sign. You can imagine the cognitive dissonance taking place. I mean, sir, it was like, I, it didn't even, cause I'm still in my head thinking, no, I know where I'm going. And it's like, dude, this sign from Millinocket, do you ever remember a sign going south and why would there be? <laughs> yeah, and I am reminded of this by a picture like this by one of our dear faithful elders who's sitting right here on my left this morning. (laughs) In all faith and sincerity, even though on the wrong path, in all faith and sincerity, I did not end up at my intended destination. My sincere and firm belief was that I was going the right way and that sincere and firm faith in that decision did not alter my reality. So beneficial faith needs to be grounded in something or someone that is true. And this is why we study the word written because it fleshes out for us the word Incarnate. As I read somewhere recently, gosh, I just can't think of where it might have been. The Bible is the portrait of Jesus. Oh, that's right. That's on our sign right now. In an age-old warning, Paul's words to Corinth lament their lapse in diligence to hold fast to the truth of the real Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 11, he says, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and preaches another Jesus whom we've not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you've not received, or a different gospel which you've not accepted, you bear this beautifully. He's not a happy camper here. He is pretty ticked off with the Corinthian church. Because when Paul would come, they usually had nothing but grief and and, and, and argument and, and bickering to bring to him. They wouldn't receive him like they would the heretics that would come into town. Paul's scolding them. My previous two messages have established who the real Jesus is in whom we must put our real faith. And if that faith is real, there is still one more element that will be present in the equation of salvation. Real faith in the real Jesus equals real salvation, which equals a personal relationship with God. In John chapter 15, Jesus is using a word picture. And he's talking about the true vine. And again, he says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Jesus categorically delineates himself as the true vine, which of course then implies that there is what? That there is a false vine or false vines. This is not an isolated concept nor proof texting. From just a couple of weeks ago, 
early in, earlier in John. Remember, Jesus went on this, this, uh, 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 this revelation of who he is to the people more and more, revealing that he is in fact himself, God Almighty. And he said, I am not just the light, but I am the true light. He said, I am not just the bread, I am the true bread. I am not just the food, but the true food, the true drink. And without saying it in that exact formula in John 10, he also says that I am the true door or the gate to the sheepfold. And we know metaphorically in that text that he is speaking of the entrance to heaven. So to have a personal relationship with the living God, one must have a real faith in the only real object of faith that there is. And if the faith is real, the other element which I mentioned, it will yield real results in the believer. Note I said, it will yield real results in the believer. Not may yield results, but must yield results. John fifteen two. And every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit, Jesus on the, the parable of the vines, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may be more. When a person truly receives Christ with real faith and the real object of faith, the Holy Spirit is given and infused into that person. And the role of the Holy Spirit, among others, is to take that believer now and start bringing conviction of the truth and the power of the Word of God and who God is and what God wants for them in their life and gives them the conviction when they sin that they need to be doing better, not in order to gain favor with God because Jesus came and already fulfilled that and took care of that. But if real faith is real faith, there will be a change in your life that takes place, yes, over time time and yes at different rates of speed with fits and starts and all of that but there must be changes and development of your faith and Jesus says and if there isn't I will uproot the vines and I will throw them into destruction and on the other hand if you are producing fruit but only a little bitty bit of fruit he says I will prune you and I will prune that vine so that why so that you can produce even more fruit. The vine dresser will prune the branch so that it will bring more fruit, which is life vindication or evidence of God's work within that your faith, in fact, is real and your salvation is certain. Jeremiah 12. <laughs> Not a light passage. Why are all those who deal in treachery at ease? Oh, Jeremiah's in one of his moods too. He's looking around like Asaph in Psalm 73. Yeah, the rich get richer, the fat get fatter, the poor get poorer, the poor get trampled on, and the nastier person you are seems the better you get ahead in life. Why are all those who deal in treachery at ease? You have planted them. They have also taken root and they grow and they've even produced fruit. Now listen carefully with this saying. They've even produced fruit. You are near to their lips but far from their mind. So, oh, we can give, we can play a good game even and still not be the real deal. But you know me, O Lord, you see me, and you examine my heart's attitude towards you. (laughs) Drag them off like sheep for the slaughter. 
and set them apart for a day of carnage. He was not on the A-list for local parties. Real faith produces fruit. God sees to that and it abides. Can I have a personal relationship with the living God? Absolutely. And many of you in here know that. And all it means, as I said earlier, is promoting Jesus from your handmaid, your your little bellhop, your lucky rabbit's foot, your magic genie in the bottle, to the one who is Lord and Master of your life. And all you need to do is say, Jesus, I need you. Take me. I am yours. And he promises to develop you. Oh, you can't just sit on your hiney on the couch. Okay, Lord, fill me with biblical knowledge. Fill me who you are. No, you got to do some things. You got to read, you know, the Bible. You got to be in fellowship. You have to start serving the Lord. And again, I can't underscore it enough. Not in order to gain points to get into heaven. That's out of the question. Nobody can do that. But it's the evidence that your faith in the one who gave you his righteousness is absolutely certain, concrete, and proven. Don't leave this day without Jesus Christ. Not just as Savior, but as your Lord. Let me have you stand. Father in heaven, like Job, oh God, many of us have have heard about you over the years. We've heard by the hearing of our ears. What I pray this morning, oh Lord, is that you would now give those spirit-filled open eyes to see you. And because of that, to retract and repent of all our foolishness and all our sins and all our, our game playing, Lord, with you, and just come now unreservedly unto you, saying, Lord, we need you. Take me as your own. Give us, Lord, all a vision of who you are. Not just knowledge, but by the hearing of our ears and by the seeing of our eyes. At a soul-deep level, to the glory and praise of your name, amen.